0: A number of caregivers who get so very frustrated, you know, trying to care for somebody at home with dementia, really don't understand the damage that has been done to the dementia brain. The messages that somebody with dementia are getting from their brain is their reality. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. I also lead a caregiver support group in my local community.
1: And I'm our husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate a certified music therapist.
0: And this is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia.
1: Here, we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine.
0: And don't forget the wine, Mike.
1: Speaking of best medicines, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You got that right. You know, I'm really glad to have um, Joellen with us today, because when we were dealing with your dad, he had so many what they call comorbidities, um, from heart disease to schizophrenia to Lewy body dementia to dysphagia to COPD,
1: Parkinson's. to
0: stubborn old Italian disease.
1: Hey, wait a minute.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have to say, when your mom passed away, and people asked what's going to happen to Roger, we had uh, we had talked about that, and we knew that eventually one or more of our parents would need care, and we planned to bring them into our home. And I remember in my ignorance saying, "Well, it'll be difficult now and then, but we've got this; yep. we're okay." I didn't realize that I was walking into a brick wall, having no idea what was standing in front of me at at the at the time. But as difficult as it was. I now consider it a gift I didn't know that I wanted. Um, I absolutely love what I do now. He was the greatest teacher I've ever had. But knowing how hard it is, that's when I determined I wanted to do whatever I could to support caregivers. And this is the way that one of the ways that we do that, having you here with us. And that brings us to today's guest. Um, she's an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavior sciences at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and is board certified in both general adult psychiatry and psychosomatic medicine. Her current work includes studying the prevalence, diagnostic structure, and clinical relevance of dementia, delirium, and catatonia in the critical care setting. Welcome, Joe Allen.
1: Hi, Dr. Wilson.
0: Hi, thank you for having me. Um, we We spoke briefly a little bit about your personal experience. And even though you weren't a Uh, primary caregiver, you did send some family members um, that were affected by um, dementia. Um, Why don't we start off with
2: sharing a little bit about that, and then we we will probe your expertise. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm happy to share a little bit. So, you know, a little over a decade or so ago when I was um, trudging through the medical school curriculum, I really was at a loss as to exactly what I wanted my life's work to be. Um, I went to medical school because I genuinely wanted to make a a difference in the life of our patients. Uh, But I had a challenge that a lot of young students have in that I enjoyed every medical specialty I rotated on. Um, And it wasn't until um, I got to walk alongside my grandfather, Ben Daniels, who um, had a very valiant struggle with Parkinson's disease um, and saw how that impacted his life, impacted the life of my grandmother who cared for him in his last years, that I really um, started to solidify my calling into psychiatry. I wanted to work with adults that were dealing with complex illnesses that um, affected them on multiple different levels, from the physical to the emotional to the spiritual. Um, And I really wanted to work with uh, not only them, but their caregivers. Um, And so that helped launch, uh, in part, my uh, interest in psychiatry and uh, went on into training in psychiatry. And it was while I was doing my formal training in psychiatry that my grandmother um, started to suffer from a series of medical illnesses uh, that ultimately led her to have multiple bouts of delirium, um, this sort of acute brain dysfunction that arises in the in the setting of overwhelming medical illness. And it was those repeated episodes of delirium that led her to ultimately develop a dementing illness. We never fully characterized what that was. Um, and so, she struggled for about two years.
1: So is there a difference between delirium and dementia? And if so, could, could you help us out here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, or you know, how are they similar, how are they different?
2: Yeah, and we have to make it really complicated because they both sound like similar words, delirium, dementia, but they, right. there are uh, differences between the two, so that's a great question. So um, dementia is a chronic and progressive uh, mental and neurologic disorder, as you know, um, that it doesn't stop, it's a, it's a relenting illness that um, deteriorates someone's cognition, Um, behavior and affect over time. Delirium is an acute change that happens in a person's cognition um, and that's typically characterized by inattention, disorientation. Someone may not know where they are, what year it is, um, who the people are in the room, may not recognize loved ones, so they're disoriented, Um, and they may experience new hallucinations like hearing or seeing things that may not be there. They may also have abnormal thoughts that are frightening and scary, such that a medication that's being administered, they may think that it's a nurse trying to kill them instead of help them. So the delirium is typically an acute change and a form of acute brain dysfunction that happens in the setting of medical illness, typically, but can be caused just by a prolonged hospitalization medications. And we know that one of the risk factors for delirium is advanced age and also pre-existing cognitive impairment. So you can can
0: have dementia and delirium
2: together. Yes, and in fact, unfortunately, they can co-occur. We also know that delirium seems to be a risk factor for developing dementia as
1: well. Now, when you were talking, I was thinking, um, I think now wrongly, that delirium can be reversed. Like I was thinking more like being dehydrated because I've been out in the sun, working in the sun and I have that time. But once I get rehydrated, I become okay.
2: So for many people, you're correct. The delirium reverses, there's very few residual effects and they go on about their lives. But as we age um, and as our resiliency wanes and more and more comorbidities, Bobby, as you talked about, add on, Um, different medication burdens that get added on, um, lengthening times in the hospital away from loved ones and familiar environments, the delirium can be prolonged. And we know that the dose of delirium, meaning the length of time that someone is delirious, is a risk factor as well for poor outcomes.
0: Um, What about the effect of anesthetics?
2: Yeah, so there are some anesthetics that are probably more pro-deliriogenic than others. Um, there may be some that may have some protective or neutral effects. We're, we're still studying um, those exact questions. So that's a quite, great question.
0: Well, when, when Mike, st- he had a heart attack and he first had a stent inserted and then he had a pacemaker inserted. And during that time, He thought he was back in Italy. That lasted for a while, but then, you know, it kind of waned and we were just back where we were as far as the dementia and the Parkinson's for that. Um, But I'm seeing more and more questions from caregivers about the effect of anesthesia and what I'm learning. And you can tell me if if we're correct or not, because we give people information. The delirium that comes from anesthesia can diminish. They may not get back exactly where they were before, but they may. Mm-hmm. And the recommendation is to talk to this surgeons about the smallest dose of
2: anesthesia to get a positive outcome. So it sounds like you're you're giving pretty good advice. Um.
1: <laughs> well, that's always good to know. <laughs> yeah,
2: so thank you for all that you all are doing to, to advocate um, for folks. So one of the things that you definitely do want to think about is trying to Um, minimize the risk factors on the front end because we can prevent a lot of delirium and we're learning about that in the hospital. There are things that we can do at the bedside or before hospitalization even happens to help prevent the onset of delirium. And so minimizing a lot of those exposures are really important. Um, One of the key facts to help prevent and to manage delirium once it's present is having family at the bedside And now like never before in the era of COVID-19, that's one of the crucial pieces of the care team that we're missing um, or that we're sorely lacking as we have significant limits on caregivers being able to be at the bedside. When you
0: have somebody with dementia and they don't see their loved one for a few days, they may not recognize them
2: when they come back. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and just having that familiar presence um, and comforting presence that's there is better in many cases than, than any anti-anxiety medication we can, we can possibly give.
1: Now I've seen a lot of, well, I I shouldn't say a lot of, I've seen some people studying and a number of proponents of um, trying to treat delirium without the antipsychotics and things of that sort. Um, Could you share a little bit about that to a caregiver who might be going through that dilemma? Of, of recommendations? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So for many years, and, and I think because you asked this question, you probably know, but for many years, the tenant was to treat delirium, let's give them an antipsychotic. And in many cases, patients would get really large doses of antipsychotics. It was bore out of a place of trying to help, trying to ameliorate the symptoms because a lot of the symptoms of delirium do seem to be psychotic in nature, hallucinations, um, delusions, agitation at times. And so the motivation was good, but larger scale studies now have shown that antipsychotics for the most part seem to have no bearing on preventing or um, treating delirium once it's present. Um, And one of the landmark studies um, that studied that came from our research group led by Tim Gerard and Wes Seeley. and it was the Mind uh, USA trial.
1: Yeah, I, I asked the question because my dad, from his early twenties, uh, when he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, I mean, they loaded him with antipsychotics, mm-hmm. and there were a number of uh, what would be considered now archaic treatments. But you know, in the twenty, in the I'm sorry, when in the forties, they didn't know the things that we know now. And like you said, it was coming from a good place, mm-hmm. but it was totally not there.
2: The, to- the doses were higher than two. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you know, one of the things that hasn't been fully explored, it's one of the things that I'm interested in researching further, is whether or not pre-existing psychiatric illness, particularly severe psychiatric illness like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, may be risk factors for developing delirium in the hospital. Um, you know, one could hypothesize that it might be that brain disease might beget brain disease, um, but it's still one of the mysteries of the brain that we're trying to untangle.
0: Well, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the mystery of the brain because a number of caregivers who get so very frustrated, you know, trying to care for somebody at home with dementia really don't understand the damage that has been done to the dementia brain and they get really frustrated with the behaviors um, I see it on the caregiver Facebook pages regularly, you know, and I have to say we personally experienced the frustration of not understanding why they continue to do the things that they do. If I only knew now, then what I know now, I you know I like to tell people I would make,
2: wouldn't make I same. wouldn't
0: make the same mistakes, but I'd make new ones. Um, <laughs> but it can be extremely frustrating if you don't understand that it's actually you know what the brain the brain controls everything that we do and the messages that somebody with dementia are getting from their brain is their reality
2: Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's really beautifully put bobby um you know it's their reality and it can be very frustrating as a loved one kind of looking from the outside trying to peer in what is that reality that's going on in their mind? And oftentimes we just get a fair glimpse of it.
1: Yeah, and, and I know my dad was super, super intelligent. To hear my uncle talk about him, he used to do calculus in his head, and, and physics in his head. And, um, and I knew growing up that this was my hero, my champion. And to see him where he couldn't understand the simplest instructions, I, I couldn't grasp how this this guy who I've known all my life couldn't grasp what I was saying and kept doing the same um, not safe things over and over. And so when Bobby says, we made some of the same mistakes, th- that was so frustrating and so mystifying. And again, because we've started down this path after my dad passed away, we've learned so much more by talking to people like you and and a number of other folks um, in the professional community and also in the caregiver community, um, it, it has brought it to light that, wow, it, he couldn't. And we tried to get him to come here instead of us going there.
0: And I think part of it is they look the same on the outside. It's like you can't see another person's pain. You can't see another person's brain. And we're reacting to the physical person who looks normal and get frustrated by this behavior if we don't understand the dementia brain. I hope that there's information that you you can share with our listeners today that coming from an expert like yourself and hearing that information about the effect of the diminishing brain on behavior will have a bit more impact than coming from one of us.
2: Lay
1: people. (laughs)
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the important things to consider as you're you're caring for your loved one is um, to continue to um, champion and um, be encouraged by some of the strengths that they still have, the aspects of that person that you love that are still present, um, and finding some small things to celebrate in the midst of really challenging days. Um, And I think that was one of the things that helped keep us going when we were caring for my grandmother and my grandfather um, is just finding those little glimmers of light where they were still there that we could hold on to and and cherish. Oh, moments of clarity. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) And one of the things that that we found out quite by accident, um, I've been a musician all my life and my dad loved opera. And to put on opera, um, he really just sat, and you could see on his face that he was just so happy. And so, um, and of course, he was of the age of Mario Lanza and 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 those guys way back when. Um, and I put on a CD of Andrea Bocelli, and he was like, "Oh my God, this guy, he's better than Pavarotti." And so I bought a DVD of him singing, and my dad would want to see that DVD. And when he would see the DVD, it would bring back so many moments of clarity and he would take us on a history lesson. (laughs) And the history of him and the history of, oh yeah, this uh, landmark that they're showing, they taught us in school this. And I learned more about Italian history by watching a, a, a music DVD than I did in all the rest of my life. But music, and that's one of the reasons why I became a music therapist, Um, really brings out those moments of clarity as we speak. Have you had any um, experience with that?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, my grandmother was a huge Elvis fan. So finding ways to, uh, she loved Elvis, she loved uh, Andrew Jackson, you know, country music. So finding ways to connect with her because we, we think a lot about, or I know I personally think a lot about the losses that we experience when we have a loved one who's going through dementia. Um, personally, the incredible losses that they're experiencing. And so to find just some of those, some of those wins where it's a mm-hmm. good moment. Um, and music has just a, almost a magical way of doing that. It's so therapeutic. So I'm, I'm so glad that there are people like you that are, are bringing you know, such an effective therapy uh, in caring for these patients.
0: Um, We also recommend that people bring out those uh, old photographs um, because if some, if my daughter doesn't recognize me as a 70 year old woman as I am now, uh, or I don't recognize her, those, you know, she she looks back and if she can show me a picture of me at 20, well, she was 27 when I was born. So that wouldn't work. Um, But, you know, her as a child, the two of us together, we can have a connection there because I'm more apt to remember that mm-hmm. than what she looks like today. Mm-hmm. Um, those kind of things. I have a question that's a little off the wall and one I haven't asked before because I haven't, I've been, I've been reading a book about a caregiver who said over time that she was able through patience and creativity to help. Her loved one cognition improve to the point where things that he could not do for years he was able to do again Mm -hmm. and I find that puzzling
2: (laughs) yeah what were some of the things she was doing to help his cognition improve
0: well some of the things just seem like being kind and um, taking it very slowly you used to do this I'm gonna show you step by step how to do it, and then over time, he was he was able to do it. I, I, I'm skeptical, and and I wonder if it's possible.
2: Mm. You know, wouldn't it be nice if there were just a magical uh, a magical bullet, right? Very wand that we could wave that would erase the effects of dementia. To the best of not my knowledge, um, there is no kind of magic treatment. Um, There are lots of things that we know that we should be doing, one, to probably reduce our risk of developing dementia, and also improve our cognition once it's present. So all the good lifestyle things, like eating a healthy diet, um, exercising, engaging our brains in um, engaging tasks that we enjoy, like crossword puzzles, or Sudoku, or playing a game of cards.
0: That's one of the things that... That was mentioned in the book. He wasn't able to do Sudoku, and then he could.
2: Mm, mm-hmm.
0: Now, I understand there's a certain degree of neuroplasticity, and he was a very intelligent man, mm-hmm. um, so he had some of that built up. So it
2: just seemed curious. yeah, you're raising really important questions that people who research this for a career are very interested in as well. Um, so you're definitely along the right train of thought. Um, our research group and others are beginning studies where we're trying to cognitively rehab the brain. Um, you know, Once, once you have a, a physical illness and you leave the hospital, sometimes you need to go and get physical rehab. Uh, there is such thing as cognitive rehab. and we're testing out different platforms to cognitively rehab the brain after an overwhelming illness where delirium is present, right? Because we know that delirium hits the brain pretty hard. Um, so it may be possible that in the future, there are different ways that we may be able to rehab some cognitive function once it's lost.
0: Now, I've been doing crossword puzzles since childhood and and I've been an avid reader all of my life. I usually go through two, two books, sometimes three books a week. Um, and I, I was at a, um, Dementia conference when a, a woman said, "The fact that you've been doing crossword puzzles and understand how that works is not going to protect your brain because you already know how to
2: do it." Mm. Um, so there's something there. there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly, continuing to do those things if you enjoy that um, is great, but also finding other new tasks to learn. Um, so sometimes what I've encouraged some of my patients to do is. If you've always wanted to learn how to do pottery or do photography, something that sounds enjoyable um, but takes some skill, it takes learning a new skill set. Go do it. Go take a class at the state college. Um, go, you know, enroll in a course at your community center. Try something new.
1: So, so what we should do is I should do her crossword puzzles and she should do she should do my Sudoku puzzles. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's one of the things we recognize. <laughs> that, you know, we've been we've been together for a very, very long time and we have very different skill sets. Um, so yeah, we can learn from each other. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> you've you've been trying to teach me for close to 40 years.
0: <laughs> How'd that work out? <laughs> well, if if there's one or two pieces of advice that you would definitely want to share with our listeners
2: before it's time to for us to end this, what would it be? So as I primarily work in the inpatient medical hospital, um, I'll speak through that lens. The family, the caregiver, the loved ones of a patient with dementia, you are a critically important, a vitally important member of the patient's care team, right? Just as any other doctor, intern, nurse, therapist that's standing at the bedside you are a vitally important member. You know your loved one better than any doctor or nurse up there knows your loved one. And if there's something that you're concerned about, advocate, advocate, advocate. Um, we want to hear. We need to hear. Um, you know, practice guidelines across the medical community are now recognizing that um, and inviting the family to be at the bedside, to be a member of the care team. So. Uh, I hope that we will move through this COVID-19 era um, in a way where we can start to re-engage the loved ones in the care of of the patient, because we need that. Well, you know, even before um, COVID
0: hit, I was um, at a caregiver conference, and one of the presenters from the United Kingdom talked about a program that they were putting in place where the caregiver with someone with dementia was pretty much given the same opportunities and access to that person in the hospital as a parent for a young child. They were, I don't know that if they called them essential caregivers, but now there's a movement in in this country for somebody to be designated essential to be able to go in there and answer the questions and also explain, you know, what's actually going on. It's, it's, more difficult now because of COVID, but it's also in some ways even more needed because these people with dementia that are in care facilities don't know what's happened to their family members. And you hear of them being confined to their rooms, isolated all by themselves for hours and hours, and and that cannot be a good thing. Mm -hmm. So trying to find the balance between making sure that that person with dementia isn't in isolation and keeping everybody safe is is a real balancing act. But I think we need to move forward to having that essential caregiver that can can do what you just
2: said people need to do. Absolutely.
1: Any other item? No,
2: just thank you for what you're doing. I think it's so important. Um, And it's been an absolute joy to um, join with you all today.
0: And thank you for for stepping up. Give our best to Wes. (laughs) I will. Thank you.
1: Thank you so, so, so very much. You've been an absolute delight and very, very informative.
2: Oh, you're welcome. If there's any way I can help again in the future, feel free to reach out. You know
0: I will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care. Take care. Take care. Thank you. I am so, so glad that we found her. Mm-hmm. I saw you took some notes. So what you got there?
1: We've always put forth about uh, the anesthesia and she confirmed and, or affirmed the advice mm-hmm. that we've always been giving Yes. about uh, always ask what that's going to do and look at what's the least amount possible to get the job done as far as anesthesia. More than anything, caregivers are vitally important members of the care team. And we've been espousing that for forever. <laughs> 18 years. <laughs> and um, again, that the medical community is recognizing that now. Oh, that's, that's big. That's huge. And also, she said, continue to champion and encourage the strengths they still have. Absolutely. And that's, I think, also a very important uh, item that she brought out.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, And again, we thank her. You Mm -hmm. can find out more about Dr. Wilson on our show website at RogerThat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike and we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia.
1: So please, subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to RogerThat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, Show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America. A nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org.
0: Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.